Welcome to, or welcome back to, the Journey Through Life podcast. I'm Justin Barton, the host of said podcast, and I'm super excited to release this next episode, which is a conversation I had with Dean Miyasaki. In this conversation, we're going to range through a whole bunch of topics and experiences from his life, ranging from um, working, growing up on a farm in Idaho as a Japanese-American right after World War II. We go into his career, his schooling, his family life, um, living in Japan for a little while, and living back in the United States for the rest of his life at this point. It's really a fun conversation, one that I really wanted to have, and I'm grateful that he took the time while I was in Idaho recently to sit down with me for this little conversation. I'm sure that you will get something out of it that will help make you a more complete person. But before getting into that conversation, I need to give a shout out to my partners. Alifeuntold.com is a service, a company that provides an opportunity for each person, no matter where they are technologically, to record their own life story in writing and then have it sent out and printed up in a hardbound book. It's a fantastic service. My mom, as mentioned in a previous episode, is going through the process and is getting very close to finishing up, and I'm really excited to see the end result and be able to share some of that additional experience with you after I have the conversation with her at the closing of that. But in short, go to alifeuntold.com and on checkout, enter the promo code JUSTIN, J-U-S-T-I-N, and save 10% on this awesome, awesome service. I really look forward to hearing reports back from people, listeners, who are doing this and finding joy, finding some fulfillment, finding a lot of themselves in doing this personal history that will be left for generations to come, for those who come after, so that they can hear the things that are most important to you in your own words. The Journey Through Life podcast has also recently partnered with an innovative and exploding in size company called Shepherd Brackets. Have you ever seen a floating shelf in a modern kitchen or recently remodeled home? They appear as if they're just floating on the wall, but man, do they look awesome. I recently received two of these brackets and couldn't be more impressed and excited. At Shepherd Brackets, brackets are what they do. Last year, they revolutionized the floating shelf industry with their original easy mount stud lock system. Their brackets are the most high-end brackets available. Made with USA steel, cut out on precise CNC machines and professionally welded, these brackets are guaranteed to be square and will easily hold over 100 pounds when mounted into the studs of your wall. The original stud lock floating shelf bracket is for concealed floating shelves are heavy duty and are the only brackets designed for side-to-side adjustment while still fastening to studs. Now what that means is you can basically put it anywhere on your wall. As long as you've got a couple of studs, you can move it around um, and position it. You don't have to worry about where the holes are on the bracket. Now to look into these high-quality brackets, please go to www.shepherdbrackets.com. Shepherd is spelled S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D, brackets.com and see what all the crazy growth is about. Now, also, in addition to this, um, we're recently partnering with the a company that 
makes the heavy-duty solid wood shelves that go on these brackets. They come pre-drilled and pre-routed to fit exactly with Shepherd brackets. This company is called R&T Home Decor, but you can find the, the, some of their products right there on shepherdbrackets.com. Now please use promo code Justin at checkout to let them know where you heard about this. Just imagine putting your hardbound book from A Life Untold and other mementos of people who have gone on before you or of your own life that are most important to you on a beautiful floating shelf supported by a shepherd bracket. It will be a centerpiece and a conversation piece for anybody who comes into your home. Now, if you haven't done so already, go down on your podcast app and click subscribe to the Journey Through Life podcast. And if you feel like it, go check us out on Facebook or Instagram and give us a like. Um, give us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And if you or somebody you know or love has a story to share, I would love to sit down and talk with you and record this so that you can share it with generations to come or so that that person can share it with their generations to come. The way you'll contact me with those types of people is to go to our website, jtlpod.com, and contact us through the website. I will be happy to then work with you in getting that done. Now at the end of this episode, we will be doing another In Their Own Words segment, another story by my grandfather, Clyde Taylor Higginson. Now sit back and enjoy this conversation with Dean Miyazaki. Dean, thank you for being willing to sit down with me and just learn a little bit about you. You know, I've I've known you, you know, to a certain extent for probably 18, 17, 18 years. Yeah. And I probably met you at, did you come to our wedding? I don't remember. It was in Mesa. Uh, I think we did. Okay, yeah, so I met you way back then. I just, that was, that day was a blur, so. (laughs) But I want to get to know you. I think, from what I know, I think you've probably got a really interesting story to tell. So tell me about where you come from, you know, your early days, maybe some memories of parents, grandparents, things like that. So, grandparents were the ones that came over from Japan. Okay. And it's a little bit different. Normally they would come and they'd stay on the west coast Mm. but my grandparents came into san francisco area and then they traveled to idaho Mm. and settled here in idaho and so the farming was what they did and so they were trying to get settled in the farming area but i guess because they didn't wasn't able to get right onto the farm. They started on some railroad tracks in the sugar factories and things like that. Mm. Odd jobs. And about what year was that when they came over and came over to Idaho? See, Dad was uh, born in 1913, so mm. uh, he was the second, second in the family, so it must have been right at the 19th century so turning about yeah right then well very cool so they they came over and they were working on the railroads and the sugar factories yeah how does that reflect in your life i mean what 
experience did they have that kind of built to where you are today? Well, <laughs> uh, it was sugar beets that they processed in the mm -hmm. sugar factories. And so uh, they would get hired out and thin the beets. Otherwise, after planting them, they, you have to go in there and, and thin them out so that the beets could have room to grow. Hmm. And so they gave you a hole and you went down the row just basically chopping it huh. through there. So that's, that's what they were doing at first Yeah. And, and moving forward. Did they ever eventually get a farm or anything like that? They started to work on people's farms and eventually invested into some farmland. Hmm. And uh, my dad and all his brothers uh, ended up with farmland that they were farming hmm. and paying for. And that was all, was that nearby here or where was, so we're in Rexburg right now. Where Geographically, where was that farmland? The farm that my dad had was on the Madison County and Fremont County border. Hmm. So it was just north of Rexburg. Okay. And so did you grow up on that farm? I grew up on that farm, yeah. And tell me a little bit about your experiences growing up on that farm. Well, mom wanted some income that she could use and spend, mm -hmm. have spending money. And so she wanted milk cows. Mm. And so we had milk cows. And so us boys got the experience of milking cows by hand because huh. of, the <laughs> of her desire for that money. Right. And uh, we didn't really like it because mm. you had to milk them in the morning and the evening. Right. The evening wasn't too bad because after you milked them, then you can go take a bath or a shower. Uh -huh. and, but in the morning, you had to go to school. And so the smell on your hands never left. <laughs> wow. So how, how did that affect you in, in school? Let's talk socially. How did that, I mean, the smell on your hands, did, did, did other kids go, you stink, <laughs> or anything like that? Did you ever have any social issues like that? No, because uh, there's... We're in the we were in the farming area and a lot of the kids were so everybody farm smelled boys. that way, huh? <laughs> so there's a number of kids that smelled that way. So right, right. Wasn't that bad, but yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your parents then. I mean, you said your dad was born in 1913. That's right. Um, tell me a little bit about, and he was born. Was he born in Idaho or? He was born in Idle Falls. Okay. So he was born here. Tell me about your mother. Where does she come from? She was the same thing. She was a different family. She was born here in uh, Idaho Falls, but then her parents sent her back to Japan. Hmm. And so she was, she was only a year old or something like that when she was sent back. And so she basically grew up with her aunt and uncle in Japan. So why did they send her back? They wanted the culture mm -hmm. to be in, inbred into them, okay. the Japanese culture. Right. And so she grew up in Japan, and then they requested her to come back when she was 18. 
And was that would have been when, in like the 30s? So she was born, she was seven years, so 1931. 31, right, right at the beginning of the Depression, basically, right? Yeah, yeah. Huh. Just after, yeah. How, how did the Great Depression affect your family, your your parents? I, I, so you weren't born until, what, when were you born, actually? 49. 1949. So you were born long after this point. But did your parents ever tell stories of that period of time in the Great Depression? They may have, but I don't recall. You don't recall? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, they weren't really rich, mm-hmm. and so therefore I don't think it affected much because... So they didn't lose a lot. Yeah. They didn't have a lot in the beginning to lose. And plus, you know, they, they were on farms, and therefore they grew a lot of their produce mm. and then besides that they had cows that they would butcher and mm. chicken they raised chickens they always had mm. chickens because there's no refrigeration right and so during the summertime there's chickens mm. they would kill what they need to mm-hmm. eat and, and then during the winter time when it was cold basically natural refrigeration so they would kill right. Kill a cow. <laughs> and, and let it and freeze it in <laughs> in the natural refrigeration. Yeah. So that that was one interesting fact that I Yeah, that is very interesting. So probably the depression they may have actually done fairly decent comparatively yeah. because of that the resources that they were already that they sitting had. on and, yeah. and had. Yeah. Well that's really that's so, really cool. Yeah, they they were self-sufficient as far as mm-hmm. providing for themselves and things yeah. like that. So, so what are some of your first memories in your life? It's all about the farm. Working on the farm is where all my memories are. And Mostly cow or moving move pipe. I don't know if you moved pipe or anything well, like that at that point. Well, we, we were flood irrigators okay. at the beginning. And so we had... For the potatoes, we had to dig the trenches mm-hmm. so we could run water down. Did the you do road. that with a hoe or did you shovels? Did you shovels. shovels. Oh, yeah. 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 And so they'd have the machineries dike mm-hmm. it up uh-huh. uh, around the potatoes and then come up to the ditch, but you know they couldn't. <laughs> they couldn't. Oh, come ditch on! Ditch it right? all the way to the ditch. <laughs> so yeah, dig it from where the tractor couldn't make it uh-huh. back up to the ditch, and then you had siphon tubes that you mm. put over from the ditch. So so tell me one inci- incident on the farm, one one occurrence that you can remember that had a a lasting impression on you, whether good or bad, about working there on the farm. I guess there were four boys mm-hmm. and dad only I guess you'd call it punished <laughs> okay okay <laughs> only one one of the four mm. it happened to be me <laughs> oh because i'd like to kid around and joke okay, around okay. With, the, with the boys and their mm. sisters and and dad came home work from work after working hard at, out on the farm and i was kidding around and he just got upset and bam <laughs> whacked you one <laughs> gave me one whack but that was it and Huh. After that, I think I started to respect him more, and therefore, oh. I did. I was more responsive hmm. to when he told me to do things, and so. In that sense, I think I've 
gained that respect and therefore I, I did more on the farm. So I tried harder to do things for him in a good manner. So do you think that that experience you had there and the reaction to it of doing being more willing to do things on the farm, was that done out of fear at that point? Or do you think it was done out of, I respect you a little bit more, I, I want to make sure that I don't disappoint you again like that? How yeah, I, th I think a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. The fear was there because yeah. you didn't want to get smacked again, but mm -hmm. then eventually it, it grew to that respect. Mm -hmm. And I felt like that because of that relationship that developed, it gave me more responsibilities to do on the farm, hmm. do things on the farm, and so. Huh. So what were some of those rewarded responsibilities, the additional <laughs> responsibilities that were given to you because of that? <laughs> well, I, I did a lot of the cultivating of the potato rows mm -hmm. and then swathing of the hay and, and you know, taking charge of the farm and during my college years mm -hmm. dad would let me work the farm all summer mm. basically he let me do basically everything okay. during the summertime and in that respect he would then pay for my college education mm. while I was going to college so that yeah no that I think that's really a good opportunity I don't know. Is that an opportunity? How do you see it? Do you see it as a good opportunity? Or? Well, I think there is a bond, a father-son bond that mm. grew. And and when he was going to pass away, mm -hmm. he assigned me as the executor of the estate mm. out of all the sons that he had. Huh. Are you the oldest? I am the third. The third? Yeah. Wow, and he assigned you as the executor. Yeah. And so it's kind of like you know getting that honor of you know yeah. that would say. Did your did your older brothers have any resentments about that at all? I uh, know it basically entailed making sure that all the bills and things were paid, <laughs> but then it the estate I was in charge to divide up the estate and mm -hmm. all of that to all right. all the members of the family and. Hmm. So did did your father sell the farm before he passed, or was that part of the estate where when when he passed he sold and divided, or what? Where where is the farm today? I guess the farm, I think he did have it sold mm -hmm. before he he passed away. Okay, and therefore it was just basically the, the family home that was there mm. that we had to decide. Uh, one of the brothers bought it, and therefore, the price that he paid for it was divided up among all of us. Among and, all of us right. and and his his share was taken off of the price. So, right. You know. Well, that's uh, very interesting. So, as you think of the family home, I'm I'm kind of staying in your childhood here a little bit. Um, as you think of the family home, what room of your home do you see as the room where most family memories were made? I think it was probably the TV room. Hmm. And it's the family room where right. the TV was, and that's where we would spend most of the evenings. We'd be watching TVs or, or talking. And mm -hmm. um, so I think that was probably the room that 
where most of everything get happened. Kind of centered around. Yeah. What's what is an experience you had in that room that kind of sticks in your mind? A, a singular experience from that <laughs> from the TV room. <laughs> well, one experience was uh, we were playing army mm -hmm. with our BB guns <laughs> in the room. In the oh. room. <laughs> reason one of them was cocked and we pulled the trigger and <laughs> put a dent in the TV. Oh, in the TV, huh? Good thing, the good thing the TV had folding doors. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and a good thing that the doors were closed. Or <laughs> 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 we'd be in deeper trouble than we were. <laughs> so so did that cut bring the wrath of uh, of mom or dad down on top of you when that Just happened? Just both of them. Just both of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now you mentioned that your mom lived in, went back to Japan at one year old to get the culture. Um, how did that, and she came back when she was 18. So how did that um, culture that she was raised in, how was that translated into your, into your family as you grew up? Well, the primary thing for us as kids was most of the food that we ate was Japanese mm -hmm. and so everything was cooked with in the Japanese style and mm -hmm. you know so we, we gained the love for the Japanese food and mm -hmm. all of that so she cooked a lot of rice and ate a lot of rice even though we raised a lot of potatoes yeah but so I think that's one thing that translated as far as the culture uh, us kids kind of shunned away from the culture because mm. we want it to be quote American. <laughs> mm. So, do you feel? I I want to touch on that a little bit. Did you experience like prejudice and stuff like that because of your Japanese heritage? I don't think we saw it as bad as our parents did. Mm because dad was in the service so he went around various bases and things like that before he was married and he saw the signs in the windows saying no Japs allowed mm -hmm. things like that and wow. so but as far as us we were kind of isolated up in this area and having gone to school with all the kids and stuff I don't think we we just didn't feel that but uh, later on when we grew up we got a little sense of that mm. as we talked to dad about his army service times and mm. how he was treated and things like that and uh, then also going to other states mm -hmm. to see other family we'd see a little bit. A little bit more? Yeah. Hmm. So your father served in the military during yeah. World War II? Yeah. Yep. Okay. And I know, and this is a pretty dark part of the of American history, is the internment camps, the yep. Japanese internment camps during World War II. Yeah. Did your father, mother, aunts, uncles experience that? Uh, no. Friends that li lived in California uh, we had cousins that lived in California, but he also was in the service, mm. and therefore I think 
that didn't. It didn't touch them as much. Him. Yeah. So what did your dad do in the service during that time? He was military intelligence. Oh, okay. Translate the documents that they found uh-huh. or they got when they'd win a, a battle or whatever, right? And then when they had prisoners, he would interrogate the prisoners. Mm-hmm. And so trying to get information from them and things like that. Hmm. Very interesting. And his problem was that, you, you know, he's Japanese and therefore mm-hmm. he was fortunate that he had a good lieutenant that was over him that watched over him pretty good because mm. oftentimes he would be mistaken mm. as the other side. And Did he ever tell a story about that as being mistaken, like a specific story about him being mistaken for the other side? No, he mm. didn't, but I think he did kind of mention that he, he is glad that uh, the lieutenant was there at one time because mm. guys did draw guns on him. Wow. And so, yeah. And then the interesting, another interesting fact during the war that he mentioned was that him and his cousin, who is on the Japanese side, oh. were on the same island at one time. Did they interact at all? <laughs> they didn't. Did and, uh, did and both of them walked away from the island. Well, this yeah, they both walked away. Wow. And obviously, your did, dad did. <laughs> they didn't know, they didn't know that they were on the same island until wow. after the war. They were talking, I guess. Huh. They're in Japan. What did that do with the family relation, being on opposite sides of that war during that time? Well, for the kids, it, you know, there wasn't much, but mm-hmm. for dad, I don't. I really don't know, but I got the sense that they honored the country that they were in. And mm. so he figured that he was there because he lived with that cousin and went to school oh, with wow. that cousin uh-huh. uh, when he lived in So they in were Japan. close. He they, had, yeah, yeah, he lived. He also was sent back to Japan, but he was older. I think he was about 10 or something like that. Okay. And then he came back when he was something like 16 and finished out high school here okay. in the States. But anyway, you know, so he was with that cousin while he was growing, some of his growing up years. And so they were, they were really close. And afterwards, when they had the money and the time, they would travel back to Japan and see that cousin often. Wow. So, so, so it wasn't, it didn't create like a, enmity between the mm, two it, yeah. it, it was they were each just doing what their duty was at yeah. that time and it didn't transcend family yeah. family lines I guess so that's a huge blessing actually I guess you know <laughs> blood overpowered yeah <laughs> anything else so man that I when you were telling me that story I was just trying to put myself in in the shoes of you know them or somebody uh-huh. like that I was thinking you know civil war where brother fought against yeah. brother and stuff like that and, uh, man, that would be really tough. I'm thinking of cousins that I have that I, you know, spent a lot of time with growing up and then being on opposite sides Side. of this. That would be so hard. But that's neat that um, it, it wasn't anything that was irreparable that yeah. happened, you know? Yeah. Odds were that, you know, like he could have been, his cousin could have got captured and he would have had to interrogate him. Oh, <laughs> and that would have been. That would have been. 
That would have. I, I wonder if that would have. If he would have walked in and gone to his le- <laughs> lieutenant, hey, this is my cousin. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, that would be. That would be awkward. I think. <laughs> uh, all right. So now let's go back to you. You said you would work on the farm during the summer to have college paid for. Yeah. Tell me what you went to college for. Well. When I first graduated I did, from high school, I didn't really know what I wanted to be, but my brother was working to become a chemical engineer, and so I looked at my ACT, mm-hmm. and I had three up high, and the rest were down low, <laughs> <laughs> so I said math, science, and chemistry or something like that, okay. and I said, well, that tells me that maybe <laughs> that's what I should do too. Right. And so math math was never a problem mm-hmm. and the chemistry came mm-hmm. but as I got into some of the higher math and things like that it was a little bit more difficult but mm-hmm. it still came. Yeah. So I so that's what I ended up majoring in. And that, and I was fortunate that I took some classes like organic chemistry at Rick's College, which mm. is two-year college. Right. And in my organic chemistry class, I think there was about seven students. Mm. So there's a lot of inter- interplay between the student and the teacher. And teacher, so you got some good one-on-one attention there with yeah. that, huh? I went to BYU Provo, mm. and they said that the chemical engineers dreaded taking organic. Mm. Because they had to compete with the medical students. Mm. Oh, okay. And the medical students had to get in there. Mm. <laughs> and therefore, they pushed the curve way up because the medical students had tried to schedule organic in a semester where organic was their toughest class that mm. they had to do. So, wow. So, I was fortunate in that respect. And then half the class I said it was about seven students and half the class were female students and they were just basically in there because uh, the food they were going into like nutrition or something nutrition mm-hmm. cooking and so mm. they they were required to have that class mm. so. so how old were you when you decided I'm not going to work on a farm for my whole life probably all my life. <laughs> yeah, from day one. As soon as the first time you went out and had to dig, dig the the, the trench to the canal from the yeah. from the dike, huh? Ditch, ditch to the, yeah. Yeah. Potato trench. Oh. But it was a lot of hard work, but it, I think it paid off because, in in high school, I I took wrestling, mm. and so you know didn't have to do a lot of weightlifting because I did a lot of weightlifting at yeah. <laughs> on the farm. So uh, tell me about wrestling in high school. Um, what weight did you? What weight class did you wrestle? And uh, well, uh, of course, I started out at ninety eight. Yeah, and that was my probably the sophomore year. Okay. Then I went from ninety eight to one oh seven, and senior year was one fifteen. And how did you do in 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 wrestling? I first two years is probably so so. Mm-hmm. My f- senior year, I went undefeated in district. Wow. But then 
This is another lesson learned. Okay, yeah, let's hear it. <laughs> uh, so, I was number one. Therefore, hey, I'll be wrestling the bottom guy oh. in the district tournament. So, mm-hmm. no big deal. Mm-hmm. So, I kind of slacked off mm-hmm. during practice. <laughs> oh. And end result was I lost that first match. To oh. number eight. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was a bummer, but I learned from it. Yeah. yeah. So what what did you learn from that, and how hey. and and how have you applied that in a specific situation later in your life? Got to keep working at it. Mm-hmm. Got to keep working at it. So I guess it says n- never stop practicing and working and studying. Hmm. Yeah. Very good. All right. So you went to college. Uh, chemical engineering uh, what came next then I graduate uh, for us uh, our junior year and our senior year we would interview with companies that would come to the college Mm -hmm. looking for chemical engineers Mm -hmm. work at their uh, work with their company and so I ended up with, uh, I think, four interviews. Mm-hmm. And so at, at the, toward the end of my senior year, I had to make a choice between three offers that I got. Mm. And so, of course, you always take the highest. You always <laughs> take the highest paying one, right? Yeah, so I took the highest one. That took me to Hanford, Washington okay. to work. Oh, yeah. There's a nuclear plant plant there, right? In That's Hanford? right. That's is that where you were working? Was it the nuclear right. plant? Okay. Yeah. All right. And were you married at that point? I was. I was. I married uh, just before my last semester. And I had to stay one more year because a class that I had to take wasn't offered until oh. this <laughs> January. Was that kind of frustrating? Uh, no. <laughs> no. It was it was just fine, huh? <laughs> I just had I had just fill in classes uh-huh. and so I I had a lot of options to take. So did so you took classes that you really wanted to take and do yeah. what what was an example of a class that you took during that time that you just wanted to take and Well I, I was thinking, well, they say that a lot of chemical engineers will end up going into the business end of the companies and mm-hmm. things like that, so I took some business classes, mm-hmm. and uh, I found that those business boys had it easy. <laughs> oh yeah, those were easy classes, huh? So I I would go to just half the classes, and I still came out with a B in huh. the class. Did those Did those things you learned in those business classes ever help you in your career as you move forward at all, or uh, were you ever able to apply those things? I guess I I didn't okay. I didn't I never looked at because the time I was an engineer, they started talking about a dual ladder system Mm -hmm. so that the technical people could uh, have their salaries elevate just like the business side Mm -hmm. would elevate as they moved up. And so the technical side was more time spent Mm -hmm. and not necessarily becoming a supervisor or anything like that, just mm. time spent doing the doing engineering. Right. So 
you were in Hanford for a little while. Now, well, first tell me a little bit about meeting Judy and then getting married before you went into went on to Hanford. Tell me just a little bit about that that story there. Well, she transferred. She came over to BYU, and it happened that we ended up into the same ward. Okay. And the wards would break up the members into, quote, family units. Okay, okay. And so you had uh, somebody that played the father, somebody played the mother, and Mm -hmm. the rest were the kids, and basically (laughs) the father and the mother would organize the family home evenings and things like that. So we just ended up in the same family. Mm -hmm. And they didn't the family was kind of dysfunctional. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because we were... Like many families are, right? (laughs) Right? Yeah. (laughs) So, oftentimes, it ended up that there's me and my cousin and Judy, my wife, and uh, her best friend. Mm. That would be the family home evening group. (laughs) Yeah. And at the activity and so... So I guess we got to know each other, and I was dating somebody else at the time, initially, but then it broke it off, and then I just had feelings that yeah, she was the one. And here you are, how many years later? <laughs> Put you on the spot. <laughs> when was I married? I can't remember how many years I've been married. Off the top of my head, either. So seventy-four. So you're one married one year before I was born, and I'm forty-four. So about forty-five years. <laughs> that sound about right? That's probably about right. All right. Well, congratulations <laughs> on that. All right. So now let's go back. You worked at Hanford. Tell me about um, how long you were there and what you did next. So Hanford, for their new engineers, they had a rotation process where every I think you went into four different areas and every three months you switched into a different area and so I I went into operations research then there's a plutonium facility Mm -hmm. that I worked at where they ran tests Mm -hmm. to check out processes so I had those different areas that I got to work in and after the after the first year then you you got to choose which operations you wanted to go in Mm -hmm. so I went into operations and basically they called it the tank farm operations and so they had these million gallon tanks out there where when they were developing the plutonium fuel for the bombs Mm -hmm. And they would just run all the waste out of these tanks. So at this nuclear facility, you were enriching plutonium for bombs. It wasn't for a nuclear power. Is that is that correct? The facility originally was set up for producing for producing nuclear weapons. Yep. Okay. Okay. But interesting. When I got there, it was all shut down. Okay. And so they were basically just dealing with the waste that was generated mm-hmm. when they were making the fuel for the bombs. Mm. And so they were just running all this waste out to the tanks. Mm. And so we were taking care of the tanks, the million gallon tanks that 
were full of waste. Mm. So, and so, basically, the process we were involved in was reducing the liquids okay. in, in the tanks. Because there's, well, they had liquids on top. <laughs> they had solids that would form on top. Uh-huh. Liquid and then Ew. solids on the bottom. So, so it, that sounds like it's kind of gross looking. Uh yeah, <laughs> I well we never really never wanted, saw it because yeah really didn't want to look down <laughs> right right uh, without a camera <laughs> right but we take samples of some of that waste and I actually went out with the operators when they took a sample and what they do is they had this what they called a pig and basically it was a big lead uh vessel mm-hmm. with a hole all the way through the middle. Okay. And so they drop a bottle down into the liquid, get the sample, pull it up, and then they slide a cap on the bottom. Uh-huh. Of course, lead, lead cap. cap. Uh-huh. And then they put a lead cap on the top because uh-huh. the radiation levels were really high. Right. And so they advise you not to look <laughs> down into right, the, right into the pipe that went down into the tank because the shine off the tanks are really high. Man, that's really crazy stuff. Um, how did you not grow a second head off your shoulder? <laughs> <laughs> only happens in Hollywood. <laughs> oh, that only happens in Hollywood. Well, that's good. Yeah, the worst you could do is uh, get a high dose and get sick. Yeah, I I really didn't get a lot of dose. I think uh, when I left uh, Hanford after three and a half years, they had me clocked at 90 millirem. And what does that mean? That's how much dose that I received. And and is that is that a fairly low number? Yeah, it's low. It's okay. Mil- yeah, okay. you gotta get into the ram before it starts causing problems. Where you get burns and. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. so where'd you go after that then? Then I came here to Idaho. Okay. And what happened was uh, this one minority person was actively looking for minorities to work out to the site. Okay. Because at the time they had a uh, requirement through the government that they had to have so many minorities. Mm working in right kind of an affirmative action type thing huh that's right Uh the action okay and so so he was looking for engineers Mm -hmm. types to come over and and so he was shuffling through the old paperwork and got my name and Uh gave me a call at Hanford and asked if I wanted to come and see what's going on here and maybe take a job and so I said, okay, and I came, looked, and I said, okay. Huh. Now, had you had any kids by now? Well, we had, let's see, we went to Hanford with one. Okay. And that's all we had. That's okay. Right. We went to Hanford with one, three and a half years, yep, three and a half years. Okay. And then uh, we didn't have the next one until we were here. Okay. And then, and have you been here ever since, or did you? Well, we we're here for about two years, uh-huh. and then I uh, had the opportunity 
with the group that I was in to do some, uh, be a representative for the group in Japan. Mm. So we, we got to live in Japan for, as a family for two and a half years. Mm. And we had one boy, mm-hmm. <laughs> Hanford, and we had another boy here in mm. Rexburg. Okay. So I went over there with something like a, let's see, a five-year-old and a two-year-old. Okay. And you were there in Japan for two and a half years, is that two what you said? Two and a half years, yeah. <laughs> Did you, were any of your kids born there? We had one born. One born there? <laughs> yeah. Right at the tail end. Now... Because, and I didn't ask you this before, did, but were did you guys speak Japanese in your home as a child or English? Well, mom and dad spoke Japanese. Uh huh. And I guess when they didn't want us to know what they were saying, they spoke Japanese. Okay. But uh, they would get mad at us, and they would uh, kind of say words at us. Uh huh. So you learn. So you learn the angry Japanese <laughs> words so as kids. Yeah, we hear that word. It's not a good word. Right, right. <laughs> but so, when I did finally go on my mission. Oh yes. I uh, I knew the word. I knew what some of these real drunk fellows were saying <laughs> at us when we were walking by. Right, them. right. <laughs> so, so you served your mission in Japan then. Yeah. yeah. What What part of Japan were you in? I was in uh, the bottom half of Honshu, down through Kyushu, all the way down to Okinawa. Okay. It's called the Japan West Mission. All right. So, so now you're now you're back in Japan. You know, handful of years later, with a couple of kids and a wife, and you're working there, and and now you know Japanese because yes, you understood a few words as a kid. <laughs> you learned more um spiritual type conversation as a young adult and now you're are you working and using japanese or are you working in english when you're at work well it's basically working with english because the engineers wanted to better their their english English. right and then they had a secretary there that basically spoke real good english Mm -hmm. and so she would help me with my japanese Mm-hmm. So I did pick up words, mm-hmm. nuclear terms and things from yeah. working there. Okay. So tell me a little bit about how this move to Japan affected your marriage and your family life for those two and a half years. Okay. Judy had a hard time because she didn't have, she didn't know the language, and then she went over there, and so she couldn't communicate with anybody and she would go to the store and she'd have to buy something basically you know she'd have to point to everything and Mm. and then she didn't know the prices understand the yen value Mm -hmm. and all that Mm -hmm. so she would be just throw out the biggest bill that she had Uh (laughs) and pay for it type thing (laughs) and get the change back so, and then she is fortunate in the sense she had the two kids. Mm. So she could take care of the kids and mm-hmm. spend all her time there. And then as far as appliances and things like that, 
we took some appliances over but basically we found that uh, the apartments that we lived in didn't use a lot of power mm. so <laughs> pop breakers or stuff with <laughs> the appliances you used or we, what? we stuck one appliance in and it would pop all the breakers oh, yeah. <laughs> and so uh, the company that we were working with they actually went in there and adjusted our power input so we had higher breakers <laughs> <laughs> but later on they they built new apartments just for foreigners mm. realizing that you know they use more power and all mm. this and so they what we had there was uh, a gas stove and oven everything was gas and then they had these fit on the wall units that provided our heat and air conditioning. Hmm. So it's we're we're just starting to see those kind of units here right. in the United States now, where right. it's individual rooms where they have the have units their own, there. Their own unit. Yeah, and so very interesting. The kids loved it, loved Japan in mm -hmm. the sense that. They had all this, these robots, these toys that would ch switch into robots okay. and things like that. Like transformer type things? Yep, transformers. And, uh -huh. and the, they loved it because they could get all these toys that nobody in the States had. So yeah. <laughs> Very interesting. And so you said Danny was about five and then Aaron was, was two and a half years later? Just about two. Just about two. two. Yeah. And was it Misa that was born there? Misa was born there, yeah. And that was just right before you came back, basically. Just before you came back. Okay. And one experience that we had was the, the church there was held in an apartment building. Hmm. And the apartment building had these windows that would swing open. Okay. And then they had these windowsills that were about two feet wide okay and so the boys love to get up on the windowsills <laughs> and so Aaron got up on one windowsill the window wasn't locked shut mm. he leaned on it he went out the window how, how high how high up was that it was uh, he fell two stories so we were on the third third floor Wow so and fortunate for him, or well, I say fortunate, right? <laughs> he he was bottom heavy. Okay. So he didn't land on his head, but landed on his bottom. Right. Bruised his bottom, but he did hit his head on the concrete. Hmm. And these people down in the bottom floor, I think there's a tea house or a bar down there, uh -huh. and they saw this kid fall. Wow. And so they ran ran into the hospital. And wow. no <laughs> so you guys didn't know this had so, happened until... So, so it was fortunate somebody saw him and, and they figured out where he was taking him. And, and so Judy kind of got... A little, I wasn't there. Right. Judy was there. She was at a Relief Society gathering. And, uh -huh. and so she kind of went 
crazy. Yeah, uh, understandably too. <laughs> no kid. Yeah. He's no kid. That would totally be understandable to yes. go to go crazy from that. So they so they ran him to the hospital. Wow. And so that uh, I'm assuming that had some uh, longer lasting effects on 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 Aaron throughout his life. That that incident. Yeah, it did. See the last. CAT scan that he had uh, they showed us all the dead spots oh. on his head so, so there's there's some dead spots in yeah. there and so his brain he was left handed Okay. he was doing everything with his left hand and then when that happened his left side went he, he, he didn't move his left side huh and so he started doing everything with his right side, but eventually the brain did um, some adjusting. Yeah. And so normally they say if you hit your right side, mm-hmm. your left side will go right. Go out, and huh. then there's a question whether it will recover or not. But he was able to adjust. And physically able to recover physically yeah now what type of um longer lasting effect did that trauma have on judy i mean is that did that have any effect on how she approaches things with her kids or with anybody else from that did was there a change in her at all for a long time she was concerned about aaron and Uh what what damage was there Uh but uh as the years went on, he outwardly he, he doesn't show any mm-hmm. damage from it, right. other than the fact that he was left-handed, now he's right-handed. Right, right, right. <laughs> but, but nobody knows that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, nobody knows that. So, but he internally he does have some learning problems uh-huh. and some disabilities, and then. The doctors say that uh, later on other things could develop that, you know, based on what was damaged in his brain. So. Right. But we haven't seen a whole lot other than the fact that he's, he still has that problem with learning and things right. like that. Right. Good. All right. So you were there in Japan for two and a half years. Are there any other experiences that happened there in Japan that uh, kind of stick out that you think are important to share? Well, I felt like I was able to, because I knew the language a little bit, I was able to get around a lot better and was able to associate more with more people at the facility and site than a person that didn't know the Japanese language. Because some of the workers, they they didn't know... English at all mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. and we had instrumentation over there that uh, we had in this facility over there and so I was able to talk to some of the technicians and because I was able to talk with them and kind of be friends with them I think they tried harder to make our instruments work better <laughs> oh, okay <laughs> and so well, that's nice some of, the, <laughs> some of that instrumentation was very touchy on uh-huh. how to set them up and things like that. And so I felt like that uh, I was able to get better data 
from those test experiments mm. because these guy these technicians would work harder for you because you were you were able to communicate better yeah. with them. Huh. Yeah, communicate. Yeah, and and you were more friend because of that. You were able to develop some friendships better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one experience, uh, I happened to go up into the facility to look at some of our instrumentation, mm -hmm. and nobody knew I went up there. <laughs> so it ended up that everybody was looking for me. Oh. They uh -huh. didn't. Uh, and they called my wife to see where if I was at <laughs> home and I wasn't at home. And wow. So they got kind of worried and scared that I had wandered off someplace and uh -oh. yeah. found my fate in life. But no. <laughs> <laughs> you hadn't found that yet, right? No, I was up there looking at the instruments and stuff like that and uh. finally came down later that evening and <laughs> so they found me. <laughs> Did you get in trouble about that or were they just like, oh, we're glad we found you, huh? Uh, yeah, they were okay. okay. The wife was kind of concerned. She was concerned, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did, he, did, did he fall did he out of the window, too? No. <laughs> oh, so, man. But anyway. So, so two and a half years in Japan. Then did you just come back here to Idaho at that point? Yeah. Okay. And I worked for the same group. Okay. And so we, we ended up making a few trips after I came back, back there to work with some of the instrumentation, things like that. So. Okay. So as you raised your family, five, five, five kids? Five kids. Five kids. So you've raised five kids. How many grandkids do you have now? We have ten. Ten grandkids. Yeah. Five kids and ten grandkids. Congratulations, by the <laughs> way. That's awesome. Um, what has been a maybe a tradition or a a family motto or something like that that has helped has been of most help and val of value to your family over the you know over the years well the one is memorial day okay we always kind of get together yeah as a family and place flowers out on the graves okay and so here in Rexburg, they had a Japanese section hmm. for all the graves, but uh, and then they had this Japanese club, hmm. I guess is what you would call it, and they would get together as Japanese family and do activities and things together, but uh, that club has since kind of died down mm -hmm. as. Uh, the need for it, I guess, has kind of gone away because everybody's gone their separate ways. Mm -hmm. Where ori originally it was because a lot of the first generation s didn't speak English very well, mm -hmm. and Japanese was still their strong language. They would get together and do things that were Japanese culture-wise. Mm -hmm. They do the dances, Japanese dances, and uh -huh. sing Japanese songs and things like that. Huh. But as we got more and more, I guess you would say, integrated into the culture, uh -huh. that uh, it's kind of gone away. And I think it's still the group is together, but I think it's gone all the way down to Pocatello, Twin Falls is where huh. you can find them. Still. Interesting. Is, is that um, 
you said, you know, we've become more integrated into the culture. Do you see that as a positive thing or as a negative thing? Or, you know, how do you see that cultural integration? Well, I think it's a positive thing because, you know, you're, the Japanese people are accepted and they're part of the community and therefore got into the policy making mm-hmm. organizations and things mm-hmm. like that. And so. I think it's is slow, I guess, because mm-hmm. it took quite a few years. Because mm. it's a hundred years. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. But I think I think it was more like seventy-five years, fifty, seventy-five years before they were totally integrated. And right. That's basically three generations. Yeah. Three to four generations of of that. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, it takes time, but. People have become affluent in this society and mm-hmm. all of that. So I think it's a good thing. But mm-hmm. then on the other side, I I still think that you need to know your cultural background and mm-hmm. things like that. And some of the things that are strong in the Japanese culture type thing is family. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's why... It seems like as a family, we get together at least once a year for a family reunion. Mm-hmm. And then as my immediate family, we'll get together on Memorial Day and place the flowers out mm-hmm. on the graves. And then the tradition of New Year's, we still try to maintain that. And we get together and that's where we have this Japanese food celebration for New Year's. <laughs> and yeah. so we have all that. And let's be integrated a little bit too now because we got fifth generations. They're all intertwined, intermixed marriages. So yeah. so you're getting a lot of the other side of the family right. flavors coming into the New Year's celebration. So yeah. And then plus we got these kids that don't like the Japanese food, and therefore mm. we have to cater to the <laughs> McDonald's and <laughs> the other types of stuff. Uh, yeah. So that's a, getting a little bit integrated, but right, you know. So as an adult, you know, so so let's say after from the time your last child was born to today, what have been some of the more influential um, experiences that you've had, or maybe influential? organizations or whatever that you've been a part of that have really helped shape you to who you are today? I have to run with the scouting program. Mm -hmm. I I was involved with the scouting program for a long period of time. I went to, during my working years, went to something like 10 scout camps and stayed there all week. And so... From the scouting program, they try to teach the boys, but then eventually they'd like to see the boys kind of taking over. Mm-hmm. So you've been heavily involved in trying to train these young men to be yeah. leaders. Yeah. And so, you know, they teach one boy, and then you let that boy teach another boy, and, mm-hmm. you know, basically down the line type thing yeah so as they come up 
the various levels in scouting, you expect a little bit more leadership from each yeah. one of those boys. Is there an experience in scouting, um, whether it be at a camp or with a, uh, you know, a scout meeting, where something that one of the boys said or did just blew your mind as to how how much of a leader they had become from maybe from scouting? Had this one boy that really got into the program. Mm-hmm. He went to a lot of these uh, youth camps where they taught him leadership and all of that. And mm-hmm. Order of the Arrow, he mm-hmm. got involved in the Order of the Arrow. And in fact, I think he eventually became kind of one of the leaders of the Order of Arrows. Mm-hmm. And so... <laughs> He was in our. He started in our troop, and he just kind of took over. As we taught him the leadership qualities, he just kind of took over, and we actually felt like we could, as leaders, we could just step back and let him mm. take over. And basically, he did that. Wow. He planned. He planned all our activities and things, and we just kind of tagged along with him. How how old is that young man now? About he's probably got to be in his his forties. Wow. So do you know where he's at today or what he's doing? He's back east someplace. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I, I'm sure that he's still involved in scouts and doing a lot of good things. Wow. His his middle name was Champion. His that was his <laughs> middle name. So he lived up to his middle name. I huh? think he lived up to his middle name. Wow. That's really neat. How much of that do you think was nurture, like his immediate family and his own, you know, genetic makeup, whatever, and how much of it do you think was um, his experience in scouting and in other exterior type type situations that took him, that made him be that person? I think it was a, probably shared. Mm-hmm. Because it seemed like he learned from his dad. His dad was kind of a scouter. Mm -hmm. And so he learned from his father. And then in the program, he learned as he went to the various camps and things like that, leadership qualities. And he just seemed like he's always outgoing and and wanted to achieve the best he could. Mm -hmm. And so I think within himself he had developed that desire to achieve the most that he could out of mm-hmm. what he is at so very neat any other words of wisdom you have here that you want to share well when i retired <laughs> mm-hmm. how long ago was that that's about five years ago okay. I, I retired when i was about 64 okay when i retired we st- we had two young grandchildren uh-huh. that were living with us. I found out that keeping the home clean, housework, was a big job. So my initial plan was, well, I can I can clean a room each day during the week. Okay. <laughs> and so I tried it, and I couldn't keep up with it. Oh. Because the other things that came in. Right. And the wife was still putting in something like uh, 30 hours a week at the library so uh-huh. so i was left here by myself a lot uh-huh. 
I did sneak out to go golfing quite a bit then, <laughs> but but I found as I got more involved with the housework and stuff that you know my golfing time came down just a little bit. But so I gained somewhat of an appreciation for a wife, stay at home wife, and having to keep the place clean and orderly. Yeah, and so that was a big learning, and then. When we had grandkids staying at the house, taking care of the kids, uh-huh. I learned that was a double job, yeah. doubly hard job. So if you put the two together, that's a full-time job. Yeah. <laughs> you, had, you really don't have time to do anything else. So I'm amazed that some of these housewives that actually go to work mm-hmm. and then try to keep it all up together. Wow. And that and that's kind of a, a an a, an awakening or an awareness that you've really gained over the last five or so years. Yeah, huh? Yeah, yeah. Huh. So now let's project out. I don't know, fifty years from now, your grandkids and great grandkids are sitting around at a family reunion, <laughs> and they say, "Great Grandpa Dean, <laughs> let let's talk about him. What do you want them to remember you for?" <laughs> uh, I guess it goes back to my high school year and my activity there. Wrestling. Wrestling. I wrestle with all the kids. And you wrestle with all the grandkids right now. Yeah. 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 You want them to remember you as a guy that is as a guy that got down on the floor with them and played with them and wrestled with them and, and stuff. Threw them on the floor. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I got a nephew that. That's all he remembers. That yeah. I, I wrestled with him while he's growing up. Now he's a little bit too big, and there's no way I can. <laughs> now he'd pin you, huh? <laughs> oh, I I wouldn't be able to get him off the ground. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, uh, now, same same scenario. You know, fifty years from now, what would you want to tell those grandkids and great grandkids? What words of advice do you have for them? Well, I guess it's the religion. Hmm. You know, it's it's funny out of, out of our family of six siblings that three kind of strayed away from the church, mm-hmm. three stayed with the church. A little rough on the edges, but uh-huh. you always stayed with it. And I had the opportunity, kind of forced upon me. I stayed at the Desert Towers at BYU Provo, and there's 40-some-odd kids that lived on one floor, and I had 40 kids that kind of pushed me to go on a mission. Mm. And I think that a mission kind of solidified my position with the church. Mm. And so after that, everything was... I did was kind of associated with the church. Mm. When I was in Japan, I told them I don't drink alcohol, I don't drink tea and Uh things like that. And they thought it was a little bit strange, but then I told them which church I belonged to, and and then they said, okay. And at the end, they respected that. And so anytime I was invited to a party, the Orange Fanta always came out. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. It's interesting toward the end. Uh, more and more of them said, well, I got to drive home. 
So I'll have Fanta instead of the beer. So that's unique, the respect but that you receive for who you are. And hopefully I'd like to see the kids get that same respect for other people and, you know, show them that respect for who they are. Basically, they they have their free agency to choose. Let them have that free agency, but don't lose any respect for them mm. because some of the choices that they make. Yeah. Anything else you want to share? I don't have anything else. Dean, this was so much fun. I appreciate you being willing to sit down with me and do this. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> I love Dean's laugh, and I love his outlook of life. Um, he just kind of rolls with it and tries to find the positive in things. It's really an inspiration to me, and I hope that you found some of the points that he put in here, some of the um, experiences that he had. You know, you got to keep working at it. Never stop practicing or working or studying, and just press through I love that, and I loved his um, experience that he shared about um, wrestling in high school, about being a bit overconfident and underestimating his opponent and how that was something that he learned from and never did the rest of his life, or at least really tried to avoid doing the rest of his life. And I love those experiences. Thank you once again, Dean, for sharing that time and those experiences with us. Now, before moving on to In Their Own Words, just a reminder to check out our partners, A Life Untold shepherdbrackets.com and also to check out my website to get any other information about the Journey Through Life podcast and that is jtlpod.com and that's also where you'll contact me with any potential interviews, conversations that you think would be interesting to hear and for people to share. Now on to In Their Own Words by Clyde Taylor Higginson. This one is just a short, quick story about one of my grandfather's memories as a child, and it's called Ice Cream on the 24th of July. Something really great when I was a boy, about six years old in 1923, was ice cream on the 24th of July. In the winter in Squaw Creek Basin, a pet name for Hatch, Idaho, where I was born and raised, The folks of this farming community would save their sawdust from the many loads of quaking aspens, cedar, and mahogany trees used for fuel. Then, on a given day, each family would be represented by a team and bobsleigh at the reservoir just south of Madsen's Place, about three miles from home, with big ice saws, tongs, and planks. They'd cut big cubes of ice, slide them up the planks into the bobsleigh boxes, When all were loaded, there would be a great tour to Uncle Will's 20-by-30-foot ice house in back of his home. There, the hard work of unloading, stacking, and insulating with the sawdust began. By dark, the ice house would be chock-full of these great blocks of ice, all snuggled in tidy in sawdust, ready to keep through the summer. At the 24th of July, they'd uncover that ice, and great big chunks would still be there. Every family would take enough for their freezers, and we kids delighted in churning and freezing it up as we would get a preview when the batch was done by getting to lick the paddles. We'd have family reunions, ward reunions, socials, and big gatherings with these toothsome freezers full of homemade ice cream, which were oh so good. How we looked forward to these occasions from year to year. 
And that was Ice Cream on the 24th of July, in his own words, of Clyde Taylor Higginson. Now, once again, if anybody out there has a story from somebody who has departed, who wrote the story in their own words and would like to have it read, I would love to add this into the In Their Own Words segment at the end of the Journey Through Life podcast. Anyways, that's the episode for this week. Once again, check out our partners. Like and review the Journey Through Life podcast. Subscribe to it if you haven't already. And share it with your friends that you think would love hearing stories, words of wisdom from people who have lived life's experiences. Ordinary people with extraordinary stories. Have a great week. Thank you. Mm -hmm.